Let me invite you this morning to take a few seconds and to lift someone else up in prayer. So often we pray about our own needs, and, and, and those are important. God cares so deeply about that, but perhaps there's someone else that you can just pray God's blessings with that would flow over those that that person or those group of people. Then let me invite you to take a moment and just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you this morning. There's so much power, I think, in just inviting God to come in to your hearts and your minds and to say, speak to me, meet with me, change me. I want to encounter you this morning. And Father, we do want to encounter you this morning. We come with all of our requests. We come with our thanksgivings, with our our blessings and our praises for all the good gifts that you have given us. We come knowing that, that, that you've given us so much good that if we were to sit and try to count that we would not have time, our lives would end still counting out all of the tiny but miraculous gifts that you have blessed us with. So we come with gratitude. We come with confidence knowing that you have um, worked on our behalf to, to forgive us, um, to set us free, um, that we, we don't come uh, worried to, to find a God who is angry or disappointed at us, but that we come confident to find a God that loves and accepts and protects and, and wants the, the best for us. And we pray that you would indeed speak to us this morning, that you would, through the power of your Spirit, work in our lives, that you would speak to us, that as a community, you would continue to build us up into the group of people that we are called to be, that as individuals, you would build us up and form us even more so into the disciples of Jesus that you have called us to be, and that we would be able to do that faithfully and joyfully all the days of our life. Be with us and protect us. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, I became a Christian, and I got pretty obsessed with Jesus pretty quickly. Uh, if you know any bit of my story, I kind of came out of a, a, a medical crisis, uh, if you will. I had some anxiety and depression um, disorders, and uh, when I found Christ, I found a, a person uh, who was king. I found a God who reigned. I found a God who cared. I found a God who um, protected me. I found a God who gave me hope, um, which was perhaps the one thing that I had been missing the most dearly uh, during that stage of my life. Um, in fact, I guess if you would ask me to define depression, like real clinical gut, throat, depression, I would say. It's just when there's no hope. You look around and nothing ever gives you hope. And, and when I was reading the scriptures one night, out of nowhere, and I came to Matthew, and in the end of Matthew, Jesus resurrected, says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I felt hope for the first time. And I thought, there's a person who can, who can save me, who can rescue me. If there's anybody who can do it, 
it's him. And so I, I, I pretty quickly jumped into this whole Christianity thing. Uh, I was reading my Bible. I was meeting with older Christians. I was praying. I was, I was doing the, the, the Christian things. Um, and as part of that kind of journey, I figured I needed to join a church. Um, I'd gone to churches on and off growing up. Uh, for the most part, I had found them kind of boring, but not uh, no necessarily bad. I had no bad experience as a, a, a kid at church. Um, it was just kind of an inconvenience on a Sunday morning when I'd rather watch, you know, the newly formed Texans lose. Um, I... Uh, knew that I, I was supposed to join a church as a Christian, right? That's just one of the kind of things you do. And, and, and what I never expected, I, I expected to, to fall in love with Jesus, to be obsessed with him. I expected that to carry on through my life. And it kind of has. I'm, I still kind of have that obsession. It's changed in the ways it kind of expresses itself um, in terms of, you know, my desire to study the scriptures now and to um, work in academia and, and things of that nature. Um, but what I never expected in a million years was to fall in love with the church. I never expected in a million years that you could have gone back to um, 15-year-old Mike and told him in eight years you'd be standing in front of a group of people. Do, don't do the math there. And, and one of the biggest blessings that you think God has given creation is a church, a group of people who live life together, who form relationships with one another as they follow Jesus together. And again, mind you, I, I haven't had any horrible experience with churches, and you, you might be inclined to say, well, of course you might say that because you're a pastor. Uh, you make your living having churches in existence. If they were to go away, you would need to find something else to do. Rest assured, I'd be able to find another job I wouldn't. We got to stick with this. Um, we got to really buckle down here. Um, if anything, though, I would say being a pastor or being in church leadership shows you the ugliest side of church that there is. Right? I mean, church is not just really handsome men and women on stage giving great speeches. Um, oftentimes, it's what we experience. Um, but church is arguments and it's disagreements and it is. Um, leaders struggling to discern the will of God for their churches. And, and I know many people, including people in my own immediate family, who have fallen out of the church can't go to a church because they decided to serve in a church and they got a glimpse behind the curtain. And they thought, wow, this is not what I, I thought it would be. This looks like everything else. Um, so if, if anything, I might say I might be inclined to, if you if you go looking for people who are kind of uh, disillusioned with the church, you'll find most of them are church leaders, former church leaders. They're the people who were the pastors, who were the leaders. They're the ones who have the, the best horror stories to tell. And I've seen, I've seen my share of that, I've been involved in that, and yet I find the church beautiful and majestic and, and so filled to the brim with potential um, that I, I have to agree with Scripture when, when we're told that the church is God's masterpiece. The church is God's work of art created to accomplish His will in the world. If you have your, your Scriptures, I want to look at that passage in Ephesians chapter 2. This is where we find um, the statement from God, Ephesians chapter 2. It's in the, the New Testament, past the Gospels. 
go past Romans, the Corinthian letters, then go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. No, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Nine seventy six works great too. Ephesians chapter two. Let's let's read it together from verse two through uh, chapter two, verse one through ten. Um, he says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have here in this passage a beautiful exposition of salvation, of sinners in this kind of black and white situation where people are walking in darkness and God invades that darkness and raises them up with Christ into this life of glorious joy where where God essentially is saying here that you have this group of people saved waiting for this coming age where immeasurable riches are going to be poured out on them, where you can't describe or imagine how amazing and beautiful and peaceful and joyful and loving this this experience will be. Just as the resurrection defines Jesus' life, here the resurrection defines our lives as Christians. We were sin dead, but now we're resurrection alive. And resurrection life, just like Jesus' resurrection, is different than what we're used to. It's as different as death is from life. We once walked in darkness, and now we've been raised up with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. And you might imagine um, and, and rightfully so, that we might carry with us some old cemetery habits. We might, we might still have some um, remnants of our, our dead life with us. And it might take time and progress for us to learn what it is to be seated up in the heavenly places with Christ. For us to learn what it is to practice this kind of resurrection life. And then in the climax of this passage of God's immeasurable grace upon us through the work of his son. We're told this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if you, if you hear my preaching a lot, you know I'm obsessed with pronouns because I think we overlook the pronouns of scripture and, and, and we get mixed up sometimes. Let me ask us, who's this we here in, in verse 10? We are his workmanship. The we is, is not all of humanity, although in one sense, right, that would be true. All of 
human beings are created in the image of God. They're a result of his creative work. The we here is the church, though. Those who have been raised up out of sin, out of death. Those who have been resurrected into this new Christ-clothed life. For we are his workmanship. This word for workmanship um, is the Greek base word for our word poem or poetry. And so there's a a chance here that that Paul had this kind of creativeness, um, this creative nuance in the way he's using this, this word. We are God's masterpiece, some translations um, reference this, this verse as, translate this word as. We are, are, are God's vision of what a beautiful community of people might look like, who might be able to be sent out into the world to transform it. And indeed, we were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which we're told were prepared in advance before us. And I've always, in the past, read this verse really individualistically. So the idea is, right, there are good works God had planned on me having, and so he knows, right, in two weeks when I'm at Starbucks that I'm going to see someone who can't pay for their coffee, and I'm going to pay for it, right? And, and it's going to be this good work, and they're going to come to the Lord and you know get baptized next week at church. And then later, looking back on it, I'd be like, God had planned that, right? That was a good work. As I, as I read and studied this week, though, I, I wondered if this is not just a more general statement. That God had planned all along for the church to be his conduit of the good work of his redemption, of his reconciliation. You and I join the church, but we don't start the church. What you and I join when we become Christians and become members of the church, the global church, is a group of people. It's a movement that has momentum behind it. That has been, that has been on the move in powerful, world-changing ways for thousands of years. You and I just are privileged to play a small part in that. We're finishing up a sermon series called The Doors of the Sea. And, and what we've been doing is examining God's relationship to the world and some of the questions we ask ourselves after natural disasters like Hurricane Harvey and, and many of the other natural disasters we've seen in the world. And, and, and I want to wrap this series up this morning by talking about the church. What is the church's response to natural disasters? What is the church's response to suffering in the world? What is our role supposed to be as, as a masterpiece created to perform these good works that God had in mind for us from the very beginning of his creation? And like I mentioned, the church has been doing this for a long time. We were uh, at small group um, on Friday night and, and having a discussion around a meal. Uh, if you're not part of one of our small groups, we've got four of them. They're thriving um, and they're just an amazing place to get plugged in and to experience church even deeper. Um, there's only so much church you can experience on a Sunday morning, right? Um, to, to really form those deep and abiding relationships, these, these small groups, home groups, community groups are, are where it's at, and I'd encourage you to, to, to look into one of those. We're, we're, we're talking uh, about um, different things we've, we've seen the church uh, do that has given us hope as Christians, um, and, and we're talking about the responses to Hurricane Harvey. 
Um, and and uh, the point was brought up that, you know, this is not the first time the church has sacrificed in response to a uh, disaster, in response to something horrible happening in the world. Um, if you know much about world history, you know our modern concept of hospitals is a birth out of Christian responses to sickness, and diseases, and plagues. Um, this is why so many of them are still named after saints um, and after uh, churches and, and denominations. Um, Christians are famous, I think, perhaps uh, most for um, being the people who stayed behind in the cities during the plague in the medieval ages to take care of those who were dying. I want you to just wrap your mind around that for a second. We mentioned it last week when I was telling you about uh, a woman, Julian of Norwich, um, who had seen her city hit by the plague twice during her lifetime, and so she knew a lot about suffering. Imagine there's this epidemic coming, this, this horrific disease, okay? And there's no survival, and it's just ravaging towns, and people are just running, they're trying to outrun this virus, this bacteria, this disease. Imagine signing up for the list that says, no, I'll stay here and volunteer at the hospital. I'll, I'll volunteer myself to go through this type of pain and suffering. I mean, to me, this is just a mind-blowing type of, of grace and love that really can only have one explanation, which is that God has loved us in such a self-sacrificial way that we are able to pour out that same type of love into the world. And so after the hurricane here at Harvey and in, in Florida, and, and you've got the earthquake in Mexico, and I mean, the list of things that have happened last month is longer than I can recount from memory. Um, you and I have seen the church respond in lots of Amazing, amazing ways. I think we've seen in reality this, this theory that we're God's workmanship, created for good works. Um, uh, the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey has given us lots of examples of the church being the church. In our scripture reading today, we read that in Christ, all these distinctions that we have built up, these divisions in humanity are broken down inside of the church. There's no Gentiles or Jews. These racial ethnic divisions are broken down. Um, there's no uh, male or female. There's, there's no discrimination or inequality between genders. Um, there's no poor or rich. There's no slave or, or master. Um, and, and one of the, I think, most moving pictures that you saw after um, the hurricane, if, if you were watching some of the news and the coverage, was um, people helping other people who they didn't know and who were obviously not in the same division that they were in. You had very, very rich people wading through waist-high, chest-high water to help very, very poor people. You had white people helping Latinos and African-Americans you had, I know it's hard to believe, you had Republicans helping Democrats. <laughs> to be fair, they probably didn't know. There probably wasn't time to have that discussion, and maybe that would have changed things. I mean, we're living in, for, uh, at least in my lifetime, I can tell you this without a fact, the most divisive time that I've experienced. Uh, and it seems like 
everything that's coming out just is almost aimed at geniusly dividing us more and more and more and more and more to the point where everything's, I mean, almost nothing's off limits now. You know, for me to watch the Texans tonight is now for me to make some kind of political statement. Um, I mean, everything, right, is dividing and dividing and dividing. And in Christ, those divisions are broken down and we're all welcome at the table. And we, we saw a glimpse of that. This is, this is like seeing a, a, a glimpse of a painting. And the painting is God's desire for the world. The human beings to love each other this way, to be in relationship with one another this way. And after this disaster, we got a glimpse of it. And the goal of the church is to take that glimpse, to celebrate it, and to go, let's, let's keep after this. Let's have this happening, but not just when there's a hurricane. Not just when we're flooded out of homes. Let's make this a reality in our world. As hard as it can be, as difficult as it can be, we get a glimpse of of God's dream for the world. Um, There's been different articles and and reports about um, faith-based efforts uh, in the relief of these disasters. Uh, USA Today ran a headline that, that read, Faith groups provide the bulk of disaster recovery in coordination with FEMA. Um, and according to some, up to about 80% of uh, aid delivered, uh, both money and volunteer-wise, uh, within the first two weeks of Hurricane Harvey was from faith-based community groups. Um, all, some of this, right, it takes a little bit more time for for the government to kind of get their things in order and, you know, they have some more bureaucracy to kind of go to. Um, I was unaware. I've never lived through a disaster like this. I've obviously never pastored a church through a disaster like this. I was unaware that actually the best place to give your money after a disaster like this are small churches. Those are the, the places that will be giving that money with no overhead to human beings within days affected by um, affected by these these uh, disasters, um, uh, one uh, FEMA worker uh, says this: In a disaster, churches don't hold bake sales to raise money; they don't collect clothes to send in to send to victims. Faith-based organizations are integral partners in state and federal disaster relief efforts. They have specific roles and a sophisticated communication and coordination network to make sure their efforts don't overlap or get in each other's way. He goes on to say, and this is the head of the FEMA faith-based coordinator um, who coordinates the government's efforts with faith-based group efforts. One of the most critical resources the faith groups provide is manpower. The United Methodists, for instance, have 20,000 trained volunteers around the country who can be called up for early response teams at any moment. There's small crews to help with debris removal and home cleanup. Um, they're trained, they're badged, they're background checked. They're part of a team that's being called up on short notice to respond. I don't know if you know this, the Seventh-day Adventists actually are in charge of all the warehousing for disaster relief uh, throughout the United States. Um, and so what happens is when they start to bring in um, relief from FEMA or, or other uh, government organizations, they call the seven-day Adventists and say, where's the best warehouses for us? Help us organize this. Um, if you've donated items to uh, organizations, they've probably passed through the hands of those groups. Um, the church, surprisingly even to me, plays a huge role um, government workers uh, are on record saying without these faith-based uh, organizations, 
um, these type of recovery uh, efforts would be impossible. I mean, it, it would it would not even be uh, you know a, a small percentage of the success that they're able to be because of a people of faith who come together because of God's love for them and respond out of solidarity to those who are suffering. And it's not just the United Methodists with with their impressive team of disaster response people. It's not just the Seventh-day Adventists um, with their impressive organization with these these warehouse locations around the nation. Sweetwater Christian Church got after it after Hurricane Harvey. Um, I was evacuated, so I was at my... Uh, parents-in-law's place and um you know after some of the shock kind of wore off i realized okay the church has to do something you know we have to be here somehow and so we started kind of thinking through a posture and we're like okay well we can make up a little website and people can donate and volunteer people can give money and then people can ask for help um and uh there's not enough time to tell you the amount of stories of the people who have helped and made a difference in these communities. Um, I cannot tell you the amount of people who live 30 to 45 minutes away, who FEMA could not help, um, who we mucked their house out, uh, who we held a, uh, you know, a, a Memorial Day party and uh, provided food and music and some joy for a neighborhood that really had no joy that moment. Um, I, I, I can call out people here in the audience, um, but I don't want to embarrass them, and I don't want to take their reward away from them for their uh, selfless sacrifice. Um, but we have um, mobilized volunteers. We've mobilized money. Um, and in fact, I don't know if you know this or not, if, if, if you are online and kind of follow the church or myself, you may have seen this. We actually, Little Old Sweetwater Christian Church, got a shout-out in an article that was written uh, about uh, uh, the uh, hurricane and, and its theological implications. There's an Orthodox priest uh, who I am acquainted with online. We're not friends of any nature, but we've gone back and forth in articles uh, and theological thoughts and things of that nature. Um, and he was working for a couple of weeks on a blog post about how to think and deal and have faith after these disasters. He had family in a particularly disastrously hit part of the world. Um, and actually, I believe he had family and grew up in Puerto Rico. Um, and so it was a struggle for him to write this blog post. And it, he comes out with it. I, you know, I don't even know he's writing this blog post um, until I'm, the, the, I'm tagged you know, on uh, Twitter uh, and go over and read it. I want to just read for you the section that he got here. Um, and um, I'll just read it for you. I want you to sub out my name when it's mentioned here, just because I'm the the, the face of the church on the the internet, right? This is not this is not me, literally doing most of this um, or any of this in some of the instances. Um, this is just the only name he has, right, to represent the church. Um, he's he's talking in, in a section. He he says. The late Reverend, so 
he's an Orthodox priest, which is awesome because I love the Orthodox tradition, Greek Orthodox. I love their theology. Uh, it's just always been one of my fascinations. And so that thrilled me. I was like, ah, yes, an Orthodox priest gave us an affirmation. We're doing a good job. We are a real church doing real things. He said the late Reverend uh, Fred McFreely Rogers would tell children and their parents that in scary times, he liked to remember what his mother said to him when he was little. Look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. And realizing that there were always so many helpers, he said, would bring him a great deal of comfort. In like manner also, in the time of storms we find ourselves, I have found great comfort in observing faith working through love. This has been nowhere more obvious to me than in our friend Mike Skinner and his congregation, Sweetwater Christian Church in Sugarland, Texas. There I saw a pastor who no sooner than he was out of water literally set about the business of contacting a sheep. I saw a local congregation determined to account for everyone given to them without exception. And with everyone acclaimed for, accounted for, I then saw this small but tireless Christian community turn out to the streets immediately and nearly unprompted in a rush to embrace and assist their neighbors. Blessed are you, Mike Skinner. Blessed are you, Sweetwater Christian Church. You are the helpers. You are the helpers that I look at during these times of trouble. And many others, as many are able, join you in helping others. Now that was special. Not as a self-congratulatory thing, but one is a unique point. I think, I think this is a cogent point, right? Look for the helpers. I'm, I'll always remember that. When things get tough, look for the helpers. There's always helpers. And then two, just imagine, just imagine the ability that we had to be one of those helpers. You and I, God's masterpiece, created to do good works in advance. So I'll close today by, by giving us three good works I think we have to continue doing as God's masterpiece, uh, as God's calling on us as we continue to respond to Hurricane Harvey and continue just to exist as a church. Uh, I'll spend more time on the first one, and we'll kind of wrap up with the second two. So don't worry, we won't go too long. The first one is prayer. The work of prayer is one of the good works that you and I are called to continue to do. And this might strike you as obvious or might strike you as unusual, but I do think prayer is a work. I do think prayer is something we are commanded to do. I do think something it's, it's something that's important. I do think that if we neglect prayer, we are neglecting our responsibility as the body of Christ. Prayer is very simple. We've talked about it as we've, um, in the past months, as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, it's just talking to God. I might now define prayer in in terms of of, of this sense. Prayer is communication between believers and their God within a relationship of consequence. So here's the big debate people get into about prayer. Is prayer primarily for humans or is prayer for God? It, does prayer change the human minds? Is that why we do prayer? Is it a form of like self-psychology? Or does prayer actually change God's mind, right? You'd think God's immutable. He knows everything. You know, surely our requests won't change God's mind. When, what if there are conflicting requests, things of that nature? Um, 
But let me unpack this for you. I think there's four ways that prayer has effects, okay? Prayer has an effect on the one who prays, for sure. The church that prays, the person who prays is changed. They get new insights. They have new perspectives. They have wounds that are healed. They have eyes opened up to people who they can go and and heal and love. They have motivation that they might not have had before. Prayer affects those who pray. Prayer has an effect on the relationship between the one who prays and their God. Praying enhances your relationship with God. Praying enhances your ability to faithfully follow Jesus, to feel and experience his presence, to mature in your discipleship and your walk with the Lord. When Michelle preached on prayer uh, a few months ago, she mentioned there's neuroscience that, that backs this up, that the more you pray, uh, even atheists, uh, if they prayed, their brain scans showing uh, you know, areas of their brain growing, and they say, as people who don't believe in God, I feel closer to God. And there's physical, neurological evidence for that. When we pray, our brain rewires itself to strengthen our presence, our relationship with God. You don't even have to believe in him to do it, which is fascinating. Imagine if you believed in him. Prayer has an effect on the one who prays. Prayer has an effect on the relationship between the one who prays and God. Prayer has an effect on God. And there's just... There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, you know, I can argue this until my face is blue, um, but the scriptures are just so overwhelmingly clear about this. Yes, it creates problems. Yes, there are questions of theology that it, it arises from, but there are so many examples in scripture where prayer changes things, where we're told that prayer is effective and righteous where the primary motive we're giving for prayer is so that God would do something in the future, that something would happen differently in the world. Um, I'll just run through just a couple. In Exodus 32, Moses prays that God will not destroy the Israelites. God changes his mind and does not destroy them. In Isaiah 65, God says he's affected by the absence of prayer. He says, I've been holding out my hands, which is a gesture of prayer, waiting for you to pray so that I can act, and you did not, so I am not going to act. In this biblical passage, God does not do something because the people did not pray in a certain way. Again, that messes with some theology. I understand that. I'm a professor of theology. I get that. But that's what the text says. James 5, we're told the prayer of a righteous person is effective and has power. There's so many texts that claim that prayer affects God. It contributes something in the way that God relates to the world and to the shape of the future. We might say, and I think this is the best explanation I've ever seen and been able to give, prayer is our spiritual say-so in the world. We have physical say-so in the world, right? We have free will. We can make decisions. I can choose to go and help clean this house, and I'm changing the nature of reality by doing that. Prayer is some mysterious equivalent to that spiritually. God has chosen to give us some spiritual ability to have some say-so. 
Now, is it absolute? By no means. That's why we pray things that don't happen. Um, is it, you know, a one-on-one equivalence to just making choices? Absolutely not. But prayer is, is, is this kind of spiritual free will in a sense that we might um, use to, to describe it and understand it. So one, prayer is an effect on the one who prays. Two, it affects the relationship between the prayers and God. Three, it has an effect on God. Four, prayer has an effect on persons or situations for which one is praying. Mysteriously, somehow, the power of God is made more available for someone to whom you are praying for and about. I can tell you this from experience. Um, when we do this before the sermon, I ask people to, to pray for somebody in particular. Um, oftentimes, I've been told that uh, a person, you know, had for a few weeks been praying for me and, and, and for me to preach and, and for me and my sermon. Um, and I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me and said, I've been praying for you, and they were not aware of some certain struggle that I was going through. And I'm convinced. You can't convince me otherwise. I'm absolutely 100%, without a doubt, convinced. There are certain things I would not have made it through without people's prayers. There are certain things that would not have happened at this church without people praying. There are certain sermons that would not have been delivered in, in a certain way that would have blessed a certain person without people praying. The power of God was, was opened up in, in some mysterious way that's made available. So here's my conclusion. Prayer is a form of mission. And if prayer is effective in any of these ways, really, if prayer is effective, the church has a moral obligation to pray. Especially like that Isaiah 65 passage, which I'd encourage you to go read and study. The idea that if we don't pray, something that could have happened as a blessing might not become available. Again, this needs a lot more study and a lot to be fleshed out a lot more. I'm just giving as a quick little example. But to not pray for somebody when they are put on your heart by the Holy Spirit, I think is to, to, to abdicate a moral responsibility that you have. So what are the good works the church needs to continue to do? Number one, the church needs to continue the work of prayer. Number two, the church needs to continue the work of service. We need to continue to find ways to love and to sacrifice and to share. We need to realize this is a marathon, okay? Um, we cannot burn ourselves out individually or as a church. We need to practice self-care. Um, this is a theme, I think, that runs through all of my points here. In prayer, prayer is a form of self-care. We need to be praying as we go forward because it does strengthen us. It does develop us. It does give us relief and solace. Um, we need to serve in ways that um, embody solidarity, serve in ways that um, show that we are with and for other people, that we empathize and commit to their well-being. Um, we need to serve in ways that are relational and not just economic or utilitarian. Uh, serve in ways in which we are committed to blessing that person and seeing them flourish, not just the bill being paid or the you know, project being completed. We need to serve in ways that are characterized by long-term commitments. 
um, not short-term, short-term fixes. Um, and then number three, the, the good works that we need to continue to do is, is we need to continue to worship and be the church. Hebrews says, don't neglect coming together and praying together. Don't neglect coming together and encouraging one another to do good works. Don't neglect coming together and worshiping with one another. We've mentioned this before, but, but times of, of disaster like this can be a death blow to small churches. We'll talk about this at our congregational meeting, but, but giving has been very low this year. Um, and, and there are reasons for this, right? The economy is down. People have lost their jobs, um, especially after the hurricane. Finances are tight, right? No one's guilt-tripping anybody, um, but, but finances are down. Um, but it's, it's, I think, vitally important that you and I band together as a church and say that, you know, whatever the adjustments we need to make, we'll make, but we're not going to give up Sweetwater Christian Church because of these challenges, we're not going to let the vital ministries that we do that aren't disaster-related fall by the wayside because something happened and we didn't have the resolve and steel and nerve to come together and say, no, we are a church. And as a church, we will participate in disaster relief, but also as a church, we will reach out to our community. As a church, we will find ways to worship and build one another up. We will find ways to disciple our members so we need to attend services. We need to give. You, you, you know, if you've been here, I've never even given a sermon on giving before. That was probably the longest I've talked about finances in a sermon um, in the last nine years. Um, we need to continue to develop our spiritual lives here at the church. We need to continue to go to small group. We need to continue to have Bible studies. We need to continue to develop our spiritual disciplines. We can't let the, the vital ministries of our church uh, be abandoned. Because you and I are a masterpiece. And I've seen too many glimpses of how beautiful that masterpiece can be to give up on it. I mean, I just can't. And if you would have told me as a high schooler that, that church would be the one thing that gets you going and gets you excited. I'd have been like, you are, gosh, you're so stupid. There's so many other things that are, are fun and exciting. But when the church is the church, and when the church is in action, and when the church is worshiping, and when the church is serving, I just have never experienced anything else in the world like it. I've never experienced anything more exciting, anything that gives me more hope, anything that gives me more security and comfort and peace and love. We are God's masterpiece. And by no means are we perfect. By no means is the painting complete. At our best, we get glimpses here and there. But my encouragement is to let those glimpses inspire us to try to paint further, to try to more fully realize the desires of God for his people in creation. Look for the helpers. And by God's grace, when people look for the helpers, may they see us.
people who were dead, who are now alive, living a resurrection life. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for the time that you have given us this morning. I thank you for the church, um, not a building or an institution, but the community of uh, believers that commit to gathering together, commit to encouraging one another, to worshiping together. Uh, I, I pray that um, you would strengthen our community. I pray that you would grow our community. Uh, I pray that you would allow us to, to be those helpers in the world. Uh, I pray that as we come to the table, that you would, um, through this act of worship, um, further cement into our hearts the faith that we have in our salvation by grace. Um, through the pure act of self-generous love given to us through Jesus' death on the cross and through his resurrection. Father, help us to be people who love and are loved and who know and are known by and who follow Jesus through the power of your Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that we pray. Amen. We practice communion.